Open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's page 852. Mark 15. Today we're going to be studying Mark 15, 15 through 32. Mark 15. And before we read God's word, let's pray. Oh Lord God, we need your help at all times. Uh, in you we live and move and have our being. Um, and we especially need your help to understand your word. Lord, we are spiritually dark by nature. Uh, so please, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds, open our hearts. Especially as we contemplate something so monumental as the death of Jesus, please move by your Spirit. Move us to wonder, love, and praise that you would love us so as to give us your Son. Be glorified now through Jesus, we pray. Amen. Mark 15, reading verses 15 through 32. This is God's word. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put him on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. May God give us ears to hear his word. Every time I preach or teach the Bible, I assume something. I assume that different passages of Scripture ought to elicit different responses from us. They ought to move us differently in different ways. Uh, while unfortunately this doesn't always work out in my sermons and Bible studies, this is at least the goal. Uh, that depending on the point God is making in a passage of Scripture, different sermons, different Bible studies will move us differently. So for example, a sermon on sin, it really ought to ideally convict us and move us to feel shame and a desire to repent. A sermon on forgiveness should move us to feelings of relief and comfort. A sermon on, say, the Trinity or the sovereignty of God or the Incarnation, that ought to move us to amazement. My goodness, we're talking about things that are too great for us to comprehend. A sermon on hell ought to move, especially unbelievers, to fear, angst, motivate people to flee to Jesus. And a sermon on, say, heaven should move believers to rejoice and to be grateful that God has saved us. 
You see, different passages of Scripture ought to move us in different ways, ought to prompt different affections, different emotions. If that's the case, what then ought we to feel in response to the crucifixion of Jesus? How ought we to respond when we contemplate the execution of the Son of God? I mean, we have the most holy, pure, loving person imaginable executed in the most painful, horrific way imaginable. How how ought that to move us? If I understand the Bible correctly, there are two types of responses that Jesus' crucifixion ought to prompt in us. First, sorrow. Grief, sadness. Again, the Son of God tortured to death. What could be, I mean, could you even conceive of a worse evil? To torture God to death. But at the same time, more than that, especially for those of us who believe, the crucifixion ought to move us to wonder, love, amazement. Because as we're going to see this morning, he's not merely dying as a martyr. This is not just the sad execution of a righteous man. He's dying for our sins. He's redeeming us from our sins. He's saving us from the wrath we deserve. And when you get that, the crucifixion ought to move you to wonder that God would love us so. And it's these two responses that will form the basis of our sermon this morning, both grief and awe, sorrow and gratitude. By the grace of God and with the help of the Holy Spirit, hopefully all of us will experience some of that by the end of the sermon. And to do this, we're going to dive in here to Mark 15. And from this passage, we're going to first consider Jesus' cross, a terrifying demonstration of God's wrath. There are several indicators in this passage that God himself is pouring out his wrath on Jesus, that this is more than just the Romans driving nails through his hands and his feet. Behind the scenes, God the Father is crushing his son. Now, before we dive into Mark 15, you might be wondering, why are we talking about the crucifixion and not the Holy Spirit? If you come here regularly, you'll know that for for a couple of months now, we've been working our way through a little series, can't call it little, through a substantial series on the Holy Spirit. And today would have been the ninth sermon. Well, there are a couple of reasons for this. First, it's been a good long while since we've talked specifically about the crucifixion. I actually looked this up, and it's been at least two years since we had a sermon explicitly on the crucifixion. Obviously, we talk about Jesus' death all the time. I include Jesus' death in every single one of my sermons. But to contemplate specifically his death on the cross for us and our sins, it's been a while. So it seemed appropriate to have a sermon on that. But second, and the more important reason, as you can see before me, is the Lord's Supper table. At the conclusion of this sermon, like we do on the first Sunday of every week, or pardon me, month, uh, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And what is the Lord's Supper but a proclamation of Jesus' death until he comes? So for those reasons, it seemed appropriate to have a sermon this morning specifically on Jesus' crucifixion. Lord willing, next week, come back. We're going to resume talking about the Holy Spirit. I've got more that I'd like to say on that. But for this morning, let's dig in here to Mark 15. And again, the first truth I'd like you to see with me from this passage is Jesus' cross as a terrifying demonstration of God's wrath. Now, the simple fact that the man known as Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross, that is understood and believed by many. Uh, Realize that even among secular historians who are not Christians, who do not believe the Bible is the word of God, they recognize that this man named Jesus died by means of execution on a cross roughly 2,000 years ago. Obviously, all Christians believe this, but additionally, many Jews do, many Muslims do, many Hindus do, even many atheists There are even secular sources that talk about the fact that Jesus of Nazareth died by crucifixion. So realize that when we come to the disagreement over Jesus and his cross, it's not about what happened, but why it happened. You understand that? When we disagree with, say, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, Muslims, Jews, even Roman Catholics, the disagreement is not over what happened, but why it happened. 
Because the why is really what we disagree about. If we listen to Jesus himself, he tells us exactly why he was crucified. I do find it interesting that so often leading up to the cross, he tells us why he's going to die. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His death was not an accident. His death was not something that took God by surprise. No, it's a ransom. He's paying the price to free people from their slavery. John 3, 14, Jesus said this, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you're familiar with the story in the book of Exodus, they lifted up that bronze snake on a pole. And those who had been bitten by poisonous snakes, all they needed to do was look to that bronze snake and they'd be forgiven. They'd be cured from their poison. So also Jesus will be lifted up and those who look to him with saving faith will be forgiven, will be saved. Where are we to turn to the Old Testament, the reason for Jesus' crucifixion becomes even clearer. And this is something I'm going to try and show you this morning. Jesus' crucifixion is described in the Old Testament hundreds of years before it took place. And get this, hundreds of years even before crucifixion was invented. And it's described in such shocking detail that you're like, there is no way that some humans just invented this. These must be prophecies given by God. And just in the event you're thinking... Maybe Christians went back and changed the Old Testament to kind of insert references to the crucifixion. Realize there are still Jews today that have the Old Testament, and they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, but their Old Testament says exactly what the passages I'm going to read to you say. Check it out sometime if you want to. But these, to me, are such powerful evidence that the Bible is the Word of God. How could it describe crucifixion? I mean, even talking about piercing hands and feet, how could that be so explicit hundreds of years before crucifixion is invented without the Bible being the Word of God? But anyway, let me give you a few of these. In Isaiah 53, 5, Jay read this for us earlier. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. This is what we need to keep at the forefront of our minds whenever we talk about the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus' death is not merely an unfortunate martyrdom. It's not merely a bloody example for us to emulate. It's not just a uh, shocking example of love. It's all of those, but more than that, behind the scenes, the Father is pouring out his wrath on the Son. The Father, like Isaiah 53 says, is crushing the Son. And why is he doing that? He's doing that so that we who believe won't be crushed by the wrath of God. The Apostle Paul put it this way, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So whatever else you think about the cross, keep this at the forefront of your mind. On the cross, Jesus fell into the hands of an angry God. On the cross, he was immersed into the fury of the fire of the wrath of God. He not, endure, he not only endured excruciating physical pain like we're going to talk about, but more than that, he experienced the hell of the wrath of God I deserved before he died. Just for clarification, I don't think Jesus descended bodily into hell, though I know that some people say that, but I do think it's as if hell fell on Jesus while he's on the cross, and he absorbs my hell in my place on the cross. It's actually been said that on the cross, Jesus suffered far worse than any sinner ever will in hell. And I think that's true if you think about it. The reason for that is because any sinner who goes to hell suffers only for his or her own sins. 
But Jesus on the cross is suffering for an innumerable number, a countless number of people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. From all ages of history, everybody who's ever going to believe, he's absorbing that in those handful of hours on the cross. So his suffering must have been just unimaginable. And unless we begin here, we'll only see Jesus' crucifixion as just a bloody martyrdom. You get that? Unless you really get deep down that this is, big word, substitutionary atonement, Jesus bearing in his body the curse our sins deserve, the righteous suffering for the unrighteous, we'll just be sort of overwhelmed by the physical suffering, the blood, the gore, and not really get why he's dying. This is actually one of my big concerns with nearly all TV shows, all movies about Jesus' death. You take something like Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Uh, artistically, it's astoundingly good. I mean, archaeologically, historically, meticulously good. But virtually nothing is said in that movie is suffering. I know that there's like Bible verse at the very beginning, but I mean, unless you're really tuned in, you're probably going to miss that. You know, it's just about the graphic suffering, which again is true, but if we don't get the why, it's just graphic suffering. And what's more, if you know anything about history, there have been thousands of people who have died by virtue of crucifixion. I mean, even from time to time today, people die by crucifixion. If you remember what ISIS was doing a few years ago, they were still crucifying people today. So what makes Jesus' death unique? What makes Jesus' death unique is that it's for our sins, dying in my place, suffering the punishment I deserve. Again, we've got to begin there because otherwise, Jesus' death is really no different than, say, Spartacus, and we're still dead in our sins. Well, keeping all of that in mind, let's turn to our passage now and see with me the wrath of torture. I believe God's wrath is being poured out on Jesus, even in the torture that the Romans are executing on him. Let's begin in verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, if you've read through the Gospel of Mark before, you'll know that Already at this point, Jesus has been through a horrendous ordeal, an ordeal that probably most of us would have crumpled under already. He's been up all night, which is a trial in and of itself, and the older I get, the harder of a trial that is, being up all night. He's been betrayed by a friend. His other friends have abandoned him. He's been arrested by Roman soldiers. He's been spit on, slapped, condemned twice, uh, and, and I mean, all of that put together before this particular point. And now here in verse 15, just before he's delivered over to be crucified, what do they do to him? You see it? What's the word used? They scourged him. Now, it's possible that word scourge doesn't mean much to you. I mean, we don't really talk much about scourging in English. But the original readers would have known exactly what scourging was. Scourging was a form of punishment used for generally fairly serious criminals. Uh, you know, if you cheated on your taxes, they're not going to scourge you. But if you were like a street brawler or a habitual thief uh, or any kind of violent type person, they scourged you. And what scourging was, I hate to tell it to you graphically, but they'd strip you down naked and then they'd tie your hands to this like stump coming out of the ground. So if you can imagine like a, a telephone pole that's only like three feet tall, imagine that and your hands are chained to it and you're usually buck naked. Then they'd take this thing called a cat of nine tails. You've probably heard of it before. It was a whip. So imagine a handle, maybe a foot long, with nine strands, generally, you know, hence the term cat of nine tails. And embedded in these strings were bits of bone and chain and sometimes broken glass. And they'd slap this thing on your back and then rip it off like that. And they'd do that all over your back, all over your buttocks, all over the back of your legs, your hamstrings. Sometimes people even died from the scourging. Pretty 
unpleasant experience, but that's what they did to Jesus before his crucifixion. Now, interestingly, this scourging was prophesied back in Isaiah. Isaiah's around 700 years B.C., but listen to what Isaiah 52, 14 says. Many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. You understand what that verse is saying? He was so beaten that people, when they looked at his body, they were like, I don't think that's a human. It just looks like a, a massive hamburger meat. It's horrifying, it's disgusting, but don't forget that it's by his stripes that we are healed. Jesus' torture, it continues in verse 16. After they scourged him, what do they do next? Verse 16, the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. Now, if I could just make a couple of comments on the location here, this palace is almost certainly Herod's fortress. So when it talks about palace, don't think like Cinderella's palace from uh, Walt Disney World or something like that. Think more like a giant fort. This was a huge structure. It had rooms for 100 guests and a large barracks for soldiers. And as it says in verse 16, they called together the whole battalion. Now, a Roman battalion was 600 soldiers. It's hard to fathom that that many were called together, but maybe it was. 600 soldiers, and they've taken him into this inner area that was not public property. Now, just think about how scary that would be. You know, imagine you're Jesus, you've already been scourged, and now you're surrounded by as many as 600 soldiers in this not public area that like ordinary folks can't get into, and you can tell these soldiers are going to do to me whatever they please. It's kind of a shocking thing. It reminds me of a high school locker room. And, you know, there's no teachers around and, you know, boys are able to do whatever they want. Kind of a scary thing. But that's what our Savior endured for us and our salvation. Continuing on, verse 17. They clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put, him on him, put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put, on him, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Now, we don't have time to go into all the details here, but as you can see, their goal is to humiliate Jesus, to shame Jesus, to mock him. They put this purple cloak on him, and in those days, purple was the color of kings, royalty. And then they put a crown of thorns on his head. We don't know exactly what kind of thorns these were, but we do know that in the... Uh, particular area where they're crucifying Jesus, Jerusalem. There are thorns that are like two, three inches long, and they've kind of twisted them all together and made this crown. They've plunged that onto his head. And then it says they're beating him with a reed. Now, reed, you know, you might think of a sprig of hay or something like that. Don't think that. Think like a big, long piece of bamboo. Or if you don't know what bamboo is, imagine like a half-inch thick piece of PVC pipe. It's, you know, maybe six feet long, whacking him on the head with that. And he's got the crown of thorns on his head. So what's that reed doing? It's just driving the thorns deeper and deeper into his skull. Again, this is prophesied in the book of Isaiah. 700 years before Jesus comes, it says, Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. Mark doesn't say it pulls out the beard, but another gospel does talk about them pulling out his beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. If you don't get anything from this sermon, maybe sometime track down all the Old Testament references to Jesus' crucifixion. I mean, they are a shocking detail. The, the fact that they're going to pull his beard out. I mean, how do, how do you just get that accidentally? You know, say I'm inventing a religious book. I'm like, oh, I think I'm going to throw in here something about the Messiah having his beard pulled. You don't do that. 
But the Bible does these very precise, explicit things because the Bible is the Word of God. What Scripture says, God says. Notice how they bow down in mock worship. They say, Hail, King of the Jews. Obviously, they don't believe this. Uh, They're professing one thing with their mouths while their hearts hate him. And do ponder there that there are actually millions in that category. They say, Hail, King of the Jews, when in their hearts they don't believe a word of that. This is especially true for those who are raised in church. They know all the Christianese, they know how to sing the hymns, they know how to carry the Bible. You know, they've learned sort of externally the Christian culture, but in their hearts they're basically like these soldiers that hate Jesus, and as soon as they have the opportunity, they want to get get as far away from Jesus as they can. And because of that, I want to ask you that question. Is that you? Do you see a reflection of the soldiers in your own heart? Yes, you know how to sing, and you know how to quote the Bible verses, and you know how to talk Christianese. But in your heart, if you were back there with the soldiers, you'd be joining in mock worship of Jesus? Is that you? So all this torture, all this mockery, all this abuse, but don't forget that it's all an expression of the wrath of God. It's being poured out on Jesus so that the Father would not need to pour out this same wrath on us who believe. Moving on, consider with me next the wrath of crucifixion. Wrath of crucifixion. Look at verse 22. They brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Just a few quick details here. After scourging him, after all of that sort of shameful abuse and mock worship in the fortress, they're... They take Jesus to this place called Golgotha. The Latin term is Calvary, which is not cavalry. You know, if you know the the army unit, this this is not that. This is different. Golgotha, place of the skull, Latin, Calvary. Now, the reason why it's called the place of the skull, we're not entirely sure. It's possible that the side of the hill looked like a skull. Another option is that there was a collection of skulls at the base of the hill because it was a common place for execution. We're not entirely sure. But as you can see there at Golgotha, verse 22, they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. Now, what's that all about? Well, you ever seen one of those old Western movies where somebody gets like shot in the shoulder, and before they dig the bullet out, they give him a strong drink of whiskey? That's the sort of thing that's going on here. Before a crucifixion victim was to be nailed to the cross, they literally allowed them to drink some strong drink to kind of dull the pain. It was an act of mercy. But as you can see here, Jesus did not take this drug. He did not drink this liquor because he wanted his mind and senses sharp, so important what he he was about to endure. In verse 25 it says, it was the third hour when they crucified him. You know what the third hour is? Nine in the morning, which is interesting. We don't typically imagine Jesus' crucifixion beginning that early, but that, you know, when most of us are rolling out of bed on a Saturday morning, that's when they're nailing Jesus to the cross. And look at how brief the account of Jesus' crucifixion is. It says in verse 24, and they crucified him. Very little graphic detail, and they crucified him. And again, this is like the most important event in the history of the entire world. This is the event that, like Stu said earlier, all previous scripture is leading up to. All later scripture is pointing back to. This is the event the entire world, in a sense, is created for. The reason why the planet exists is so that this event can take place, but described in four little words. And they crucified him. 
Now again, like scourging, we don't understand crucifixion well, but the first readers would have. Uh, Crucifixion was as common in the first century as, say, funeral processions are today. If you've ever been driving around to see a funeral procession going through town, that's how common crucifixions were. Crucifixion, we don't know when it originated. Could have been invented by the Persians, could have been invented by the Phoenicians. We're not entirely sure. But the whole goal was to basically kill somebody by making them as painful as possible. I mean, it's kind of a sick idea if you think about it, but that was the goal. How can we kill somebody and in the process make it as painful as conceivable? That's crucifixion. The reason for that is because in the crucifixion process, no major arteries or organs are punctured. So, so basically you hang there until you just like give up life, until you know, like you give up the ghost. I know I've mentioned this before, but our word excruciating in English is, comes from the Latin from the cross, ek, out of, and then cruciating, you know, from uh, crucifix, cruciating, excruciating. Crucifixion obviously began with a cross. So I know I've mentioned this before, but curiously, this cross here is pretty similar in the dimensions of what a cross would have been like, just not so much section up at the top. Uh, You obviously got the vertical bar, which would have been eight, 10 feet long, horizontal bar, about six feet long. The victim was forced to carry the horizontal bar on his shoulders, which probably would have been three, 400 pounds, uh, from where he was sentenced to the place of crucifixion. And we know that, again, from other Gospels, that's what Jesus did. He carried the cross there, thrown down, and I think you all know what happens after that. He's pinned the cross with these big stakes. Uh, And imagine nails, don't think, you know, 12 penny nails from Lowe's. You know, think more like railroad spikes. Uh, Long, big, square things, you know, maybe an inch at the head, uh, driven, and typically they think they were, I know with the pictures often put the hole right here, most likely it went down through here because I've tested it, and if it was up here, it'd just rip right out. But they put it through kind of locking through the wrist, you know, where the bone goes, nailing both hands and feet. They'd use a nail, obviously through the feet, but typically, not typically, often they put it through both, like right behind both Achilles tendons at the same time. Uh, you know, they bend the legs kind of sideways, put it through both of them, and then they'd raise the cross up and drop it into a hole, and there he hung until he died. Now, we know from, again, ancient accounts that sometimes you would hang on the cross for a couple of days, uh, and the reason for that is because crucifixion did not kill you through blood loss. Uh, and again, this was so intentional. They didn't, you know, stab you in the heart or something like that. You know, you're just pinned there, and what happens is you can't lift your body to breathe, and you just kind of suffocate under your own body weight. Uh, if you ever want to try this, go find, like, monkey bars or a pull-up bar and put your hands out as far as they'll go, and then just start hanging there. After about 15 seconds, it gets unbelievably unpleasant. Uh, now, imagine doing that for, you know, hours and days, That's what Jesus is experiencing for us and our salvation. Now, like I mentioned, so many of the events connected with the crucifixion are predicted in Old Testament prophecy. Listen to Psalm 22, 16. This is hundreds of years before crucifixion is even invented. Dogs have encompassed me, and a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Again, just thinking about that from the perspective of a skeptic, how am I going to imagine them piercing? What, what else could that be? They pierced my, like, that's not something that happens every day. It's not something that happens often. And, you know, what are they going to just, what are they imagining there if this is some skeptic throwing the Bible together? It makes no sense, but it does make complete sense if God is telling us what the crucifixion's like. Now, when we come to Jesus, 
Something that I want to emphasize is that while Jesus died on the cross, he did not die by the cross. I know that sounds like a distinction without difference, so let me explain what I mean. He died on the cross, he did not die by the cross. In Jesus' case, his death was completely voluntary. He gave up his life. In John 10, 18, Jesus said this, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. Realize Jesus had the power in his divine nature to avoid the cross had he wanted to. I mean, he could have called for all the angels of heaven at this very instant to come and just obliterate these Romans with lightning bolts if he wanted to. And he actually says this explicitly in Matthew 26, 53. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? So again, Jesus, unlike all other crucifixion victims, did not die against his will. He was giving up his life. So what that means is that at the end of the day, what held him there was not the nails. I know that this is kind of a shocking idea, but what held him there, he's willingly enduring that. I mean, and think about that. Sometimes there are things I read in the Bible, I'm like, I can't, I, I, I could not do that. I could, I could not keep my hands and my feet there when I had the power to just like pop them off. But Jesus did that again for us in our salvation because he was saving us by his suffering. Now, as Jesus is hanging there, notice what the soldiers are doing. This ought to strike us as so sadly ironic. Verse 24, And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. They're more interested in playing games than in the death of the Savior of the world. Uh, they're more interested in gambling and making a few cheap bucks uh, than in the suffering of the Messiah. Again, this was prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah 22, 17. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Check a Jewish Bible sometime and, and see that that's exactly what the Jewish Bible says, and then ask yourself, what else could this be describing? Now look at the charge they put against Jesus, verse 26. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. You've probably heard this before, but it was common for a crucifixion victim for, for the charge that he was guilty of to be advertised above the cross. They'd literally nail it, like up there. So if we're crucifying somebody that's a murderer, you, you put up on the sign, this guy's a murderer. And the intent was to warn people. Uh, you know, Rome was pretty shrewd in how they controlled everything, and they used crucifixions as sort of a billboard. You want to mess with Rome, this is what's going to happen to you. You want to break our laws, this is what's going to happen to you. So they put the crime up there, again, as sort of twisted advertising. And as you can see here, Pilate says, this is the king of the Jews. Now, in reality, Pilate's trying to mock the Jews. We know that Pilate hated the Jews and, you know, was kind of frustrated having to deal with them. So he's probably mocking them. Look, Jews, this is your king. You like this? This is your king. But like so much that's going on in Scripture, Pilate is speaking better than he knew because in reality, Jesus is the king of the Jews. And not only the king of the Jews, but the king of kings and lord of lords. If you really look at it, this entire passage is filled with sort of fascinating kingly imagery, uh, royal imagery all over the place, uh, though those engaging in it don't even realize what they're doing. I mean, think about it. First, there's that mock ceremony by the soldiers. They've dressed him up like a king, not realizing that he actually is a king. There's the sign that Pilate puts above Jesus. This is the king of the Jews, though obviously Pilate doesn't really believe he's the king. But one more little detail I want you to look at, verse 27. And they crucified with him two robbers, 
one on his right and one on his left. Now, it's interesting that many have drawn attention to that phrase, one on his right and one on his left, and noticed that in other contexts, that identical phraseology is used of a king sitting on his throne. You ever seen some of those depictions where you might have the queen over here and then, you know, maybe a good counselor over here? Uh, Identical terminology, but here used of Jesus, one on his right and one on his left. You put all these details together, and what we see is God himself testifying in a very powerful way, a way far greater than any of the participants knew, this is my king. This is my king. Though people are killing him, mocking him, ignoring him, making fun of him, this is my king, and I'm going to make sure for all future generations that people will recognize that this is my king. This is why the early church fathers, they often spoke of Jesus reigning on the cross. Reigning, and you think, what in the world does that mean? He's reigning on the cross. Well, to the early church fathers, the cross was, in a sense, Jesus' throne from which he's exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is the king, and not only the king of Israel, but he is the king of all of us, the king of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. But the question I want to press upon you is, is Jesus your king? Is he really? And not just in the sense that, like Pilate, you profess, oh, yes, he is a king. But do you really view your life in terms where he is the king and you're the subject? He says jump, you say how high. He says this is marriage, you say yes, Lord, I'll do that. He says this is how you use your sexuality, you say yes, Lord, I'll do that. Do you really look at your relationship with Jesus as king? Or again, are you like those soldiers that just sort of give verbal acquiescence but hate him in your heart? Is Jesus your king? There's one more expression of wrath I want us to notice in this passage, and that's the wrath of humiliation. Verses 29 through 32. Look at verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. You ever been mocked, made fun of? It can be incredibly painful. I mean, sometimes it's more painful than physical suffering. You ever been there? Mocked on the school bus, mocked on the playground. The, the, the combined force of what Jesus must be going through here is unbelievable. In the Gospel of Luke, it talks about him being so overwhelmed with anxiety that he's sweating something that's similar to great drops of blood coming down from his face. And we understand why that's the case. All of this combined, and he knows that this is coming, but again, never lose sight of the fact that he's doing this for us. For us and our salvation. Again, oddly enough, this mockery, too, was predicted in the Old Testament. I've got to quit saying oddly enough because all this stuff's, you know, should we be surprised? No. The Bible's the Word of God. But listen to Psalm 22, 6 and 7. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Look at the words of their mockery. They say, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Again, such irony because he is destroying the temple, the temple which is his body. And what's more, he is saving others. They're speaking better than they know. I want you to again pause and ask yourself, is this your response to Jesus? Are you one of these passers-by that hardly give a thought to Jesus, maybe mock him and make fun of him as you walk, uh, but you're infinitely more interested in your smartphone or in making money or in playing video games? Is that you? I mean, we've portrayed Jesus for you vividly, as vividly as we can, but again, you don't have, you don't have the time of day. You, you, you don't give him 30 seconds. Is that you? 
Do you see yourself in these passers-by? In verse 31, we have another group of people witnessing the crucifixion. Verse 31, So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him, saying to one another, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. These chief priests, they were the collection of former high priests. Uh, you had a sort of a period of time where you were the high priest, but then you retired, but what do you do? So, so they were kind of like the priest emeritus, that's what they were. The scribes, these were scholars of the Old Testament law, kind of like lawyers in our day. So what we're talking about here are the religious elites of Israel. They were the ones that knew their stuff. They should have known all of these Old Testament passages that I've mentioned to you. And yet as the king of the world is being murdered right before their eyes, all they're doing is mocking. And again, the irony is shocking. He saved others, he cannot save himself. What they didn't realize is that had he saved himself by coming down from the cross, none of us would be saved. Or why is that? Like Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Through all of this, see God coordinating everything while people saying things better than they even realized. They have no really clue what's going on, and yet through all of this, God is accomplishing the plan of salvation that he put together from before the creation of the world. All of this is the wrath of humiliation. Now to conclude our time, let's see if we can tie this together. And what I'd like to conclusion is see in Jesus' cross a powerful demonstration of God's love. See in Jesus' cross a powerful demonstration of God's love. Now we've talked about some kind of gritty stuff this morning. Uh, stuff that I hope I never see with my own eyes. I mean, Jesus has become an object of God's wrath in the form of torture. He's become an object of God's wrath in the form of crucifixion. He's become an object of God's wrath in the form of humiliation. All of that is true. God unleashed his wrath on his son on the cross. But I come back to that question that we pondered at the beginning. Why did he do this? Why did the father do this? Because again, the Bible is clear that it's the father crushing the son. But why? Why did God take the sinless, perfect Son of God and treat him as if he's the worst sinner that's ever lived? Thankfully, we don't need to speculate to answer that question. The Bible itself answers that question. In Romans 3, 23 through 26, I'd encourage you to write that down, meditate on your devotions, in your devotions this week. Romans 3, 23 through 26, why did Jesus become an object of God's wrath? I won't read the entire section, but the key verse is this, verse 26. It was to show God's righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I love that phraseology, that he might be just, God might be righteous, and the justifier, the forgiver, the savior of those who have faith in Jesus. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, we are delighted you're here. Thank you for coming. Again, there's nowhere we'd rather you be at 1045 than here with us, hearing God's word, singing God, God's praises. But that little phrase, just and the justifier, or the one who has faith in Jesus, it's likely that doesn't make a lot of sense to you. Let me explain. The gospel says that you were created to know God. You were made to have a relationship with the almighty maker of heaven and earth. That's why you're on this planet. That's why you exist, to know and enjoy and to glorify God forever. And yet the Bible tells us that we've all sinned, we've all rebelled against our creator. We've rejected his laws, rejected his lordship, rejected his kingship. Basically tried to live as if there is no God when he is a loving heavenly father who desires to take care of us. 
And because God is righteous, he will punish us for our sins. He must. And yet under those very circumstances, God acted. He became incarnate. Almighty, eternal, infinite God took on flesh and walked among us, born as a little baby and given the name Jesus. Jesus grows up and lives a perfect life, tempted in all the different areas of life like we are, yet perfectly obeyed. But then Jesus dies on the cross, and like we've talked about all morning, he endures the wrath of God. But by enduring the wrath of God, this is how God can remain righteous while forgiving sinners. How God can remain holy and pure while saying to sinners who are not holy and pure, you're forgiven, you're welcomed into my family. This is what it means that God is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Three days later, God the Father raises Jesus from the dead to demonstrate that what I'm telling you today is true. And what a fitting culmination of the gospel. I mean, isn't that such, like I couldn't, one of the things about the gospel that most impresses me is that I don't think, if you, if you had a room of like a thousand Einsteins, they could not think of a story this beautiful, this, this perfect. I mean, what a more perfect conclusion to the suffering of the Son of God than to resurrect him and then to exalt him as king of the universe and then to bring him back in the future to judge. I mean, these things to me, they seem so perfect, they can't but be from God. But anyway, he's resurrected ascends to heaven where he's right now, and he's offering to you forgiveness of sins and eternal life if you'll but turn to him and embrace him with faith. Apart from any works, you don't have to earn this, you don't have to buy this, you don't have to commit that I'm going to go to church for the rest of my life, though if you are saved, you'll want to. As a free gift, embrace Jesus, be right now forgiven, right now reconciled to your creator. Enter back into that relationship you were created for in the beginning. And as we close, this is what I invite you to do right now and extend you the invitation to trust Jesus. Jesus' death, it's the only way God can remain just and be the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. The only way he can remain holy while forgiving us and our sins. So if you've never committed yourself, body and soul, to the Lord Jesus, do it right now. Right now, stop running from God. Stop marching to the tune of your own drummer. Rely on Jesus' death and resurrection. Embrace his loving leadership and instantly, permanently be made right with your creator. That's the offer of the gospel to you this morning. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss any of this further, need clarification on something that I've said, maybe something I said earlier, like I didn't really get that, by all means, talk to me at the door. I'll try and clarify. But put your hope in this person, the Lord Jesus, because without him, God cannot be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. But now that he has suffered and died, he can be the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So come to him today. Now, in conclusion, I want to say my final word to those of us who are believers, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, who have put our hope in the Lord Jesus, and especially as we turn to reflect on the Lord's Supper. What I want us to think on now is the way in which all the wrath depicted in this passage is really, at the end of the day, what our sins deserve, what I deserve for my sins. You see, I deserve to be the one naked and scourged, tied to that stump because of my rebellion. For all my pride, all my laziness, all my lust, all my inconsistency, I deserve to be scourged like that. I deserve to be crucified, hanging there in Darkness and pain and agony for hours. That's what our sins deserve. But why won't we who trust in Jesus become objects of God's wrath? Why are we forever rescued from hell and have the sure and certain hope of heaven? Because like Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 
Meditating on this well, Pastor J.C. Ryle writes this. The passage we have now read, talking about the passage we just studied here, the passage we have now read is one of those which shows us the infinite love of Christ toward sinners. The sufferings described in it would fill our minds with mingled horror and compassion if they had been inflicted on one who was only a man like ourselves. But when we reflect that the sufferer was the eternal Son of God, we are lost in wonder and amazement. And when we further reflect that these sufferings were voluntarily endured to deliver sinful men and women like ourselves from hell, we may see something of St. Paul's meaning when he says, the love of Christ passes knowledge. Let the cross of Christ be often before our minds. Rightly understood, no object in all Christianity is so likely to have a sanctifying as well as a comforting effect on our souls. So now, brothers and sisters, as we sing, let us praise God that Jesus was made sin for us. As we hold the bread in our hands, let us praise God that Jesus was made a curse for us. As we take up the cup, let us praise God that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And now together with boldness, let us say in the words of Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Pray with me. Oh God in heaven, it is overwhelming to contemplate your love for us. We, when we just start to get it, we do, we do feel as if it surpasses knowledge. Uh, Lord, that Jesus would willingly endure this for us, it, in the flesh, it is impossible to believe. So we thank you for the gift of your Spirit who enables us to believe such things, who, who enables us to believe that you love us so much that Jesus gladly endured this for our salvation. Lord, we do pray for any within the hearing of my voice who are not hoping in Jesus, who are not banking their, their, their eternal fate and the, the welfare of their souls on this event. Move in their hearts right now that they would look to Jesus and trust in him entirely. Lord, as we turn to the Lord's Supper, help those of us who believe to find comfort, to find joy, to find hope in this meal and use it to build our faith. Through Jesus we pray, amen.